0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 116, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Some schools have started locking up student phones, We'll weigh in. Plus, a new survey measures how many teachers have side jobs. Stay with us. dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through stories each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education plus we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community this week trevor mckenzie's here to tell us how we can dive into inquiry-based learning Hello everybody, Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by the hardest working principal east of the Mississippi, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing?
1: I'm fantastic today.
0: How was school the past week? How have things been looking for you?
1: Oh, School has been real interesting. Had a downpour today. Started my day with my pants soaked at three inches of water, trying to unload buses. But let me tell you, my students still come in happy as they can be. So it's worth the rain.
0: As a uh, principal, can you not just be like, you guys go ahead and handle bus duty. I'm going to stay inside. It's pouring rain.
1: I love leading by example. That's if good. I'm on duty, if I'm greeting students and I'm excited about the start of the day, everyone else will be too.
0: Are you high fiving students and stuff as they're getting off the bus?
1: Oh, yeah. Yes, high five. And I compliment the big bows, nice tennis shoes, give hugs. And I also check on my babies that aren't smiling and, you know, not responding to me. And, and I think it's important when I'm not there, my poor assistant principal, when I'm not there, they'll give her a hug. They'll give her a high five and then they'll say, where's Miss Pollard?
0: Gotta love it. So uh, what's going on in the teacher's lounge this week, Christina?
1: Oh, my goodness. Have you heard about the cell phone Uh, policy that they have in california i
0: did this actually made national news like i think like nbc had it a few big agencies had this story
1: well administrators in this school in san mateo high school they think it's a positive to have a no cell phone policy but even more than that they are actually collecting cell phones from students when they enter the building Like they're putting them in. They're putting them in a little pouch and they're magnetized and they are sealed until the end of the day. It's a lot of extra steps in the morning time for a set of administrators and teachers.
0: I have a lot of questions about this, but what would you say the percentages of school districts that actually allow cell phones in the school?
1: There are many high schools that simply have the cyber policies in place about character and respect and how you use technology. Obviously, we know there's a ton of apps out there and websites that can be used in a classroom and many teachers want their students pull out your cell phone we're going to play kahoot It's a great engaging way to quiz students however on the flip side of that there are still small areas and small school districts who are not quite comfortable so there is a school board policy that says absolutely no cell phones and I believe that policy was actually in place At San Mateo High School, but this was a way to change engagement.
0: Okay, so they went uh, a little step further with these pouches, is what you're saying?
1: Absolutely, and they also they studied it for a little while and found that they thought that students being unplugged led to more conversations in person. They believe that they saw uh, more dancing and just enjoying their breaks out in the courtyard. But at the end of the day. Teachers and administrators have to release every single cell phone to students before bus dismissal. And I don't know about you, but if that's a large high school, 1,700 Students.
0: All right. So yeah, of course, it's going to take a long time to, to gather up all these phones, put them in the pouches, and then release them later on in the day. But I also wonder about like the cost that this is going to be. I mean, this must be a, a private company doing this. I know uh, comedians have used a similar um, company, I think, to kind of keep uh, people in the audience from filming their shows. So is this a lot?
1: Very expensive. About $20,000 just for this school.
0: As a principal, when you hear that a school district is dropping twenty grand on this... What goes through your mind?
1: I immediately thought, if I had an extra 20 grand, imagine the additional textbooks I could purchase and the instructional materials for classrooms. And that would help teachers keep from spending so much money out of their pocket if we could put a lot on the front end. $20,000 to pouch a cell phone? that's a little,
0: it does seem extreme.
1: It's extreme. In our school district, we do have a no cell phone policy. Mm -hmm. We know almost every child, probably from third grade on up, has a cell phone. But I think it's about the relationships that you have in place. I think it's about clear expectations and and procedures in your building. And I'll tell you, I'll see a teenager come through, get off the bus, and I can see the cell phone in their pocket. And I'll say, put your cell phone in your backpack so we don't have that issue. And I get that response. Yes, ma'am.
0: Another part of my job is I do I do a lot of video work. So I find myself in these settings where I'm filming adults listening to speakers. I just, just one of the rooms that I often find myself in. And I can't help but notice that the adults are just as bad as the kids. I mean, there'll be a paid speaker on a stage and all these adults are just looking at their phone at whatever. I mean, it, they might be dealing with business, but it could be Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I mean, are we not... Uh, leading by example, as you were talking about earlier.
1: Take your video camera out to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Check out families that are out dining together mm-hmm. and count at a family of five how many members of the family are on their cell phone. They're missing that great connection with their children, um, being able to, to create memories because they're on their cell phone. And I'll tell you, it happens at my table. I live in a sports home. My husband coaches sports. Both of my boys play multiple sports and they are on ESPN and they've got to share all the statistics. And I have to remind them, mom's over here. Let's put the phone up. Talk to me about your day and right. use a word other than good. Right. Exactly. You know, but you have to be very conscious to do that. And so, no, I'll give you another example that I think um, really shocked our administrative team in our school district. Two years ago, our superintendent started no cell phone principal meetings. There is a basket at the door decorated. Oh, so lovely with a sign in sheet that says no cell phones beyond this point. And it's difficult because that includes my iWatch. So I can't sneak and check my text messages. He really wants our full attention and wants us to be able to engage and collaborate without distractions. And if you're running a good school, they shouldn't need to text you every five minutes. Well, that's the same for CEOs.
0: We had the uh, same problem at the TV station when I was the news director. We had a room when a show is on air, you have this room full of production people who are directing and punching audio and putting up name supers and graphics on TV. And you'll, I would, we found that we were having mistakes in the show, like missed punches or audio would be punched improperly. And it turned out that a lot of the folks in there were looking at their phones while we were live on the air. Uh, So we actually had to put a basket outside of the production control room so everybody could put their phones in there.
1: I started that policy at my school. When I have staff development on Wednesdays, I'll let the teachers know, especially if we're bringing in a speaker, no technology at all, no laptops, no cell phones.
0: So if I'm hearing you right, you think it's ridiculous that... the school district's using a third-party company and spending lots of money to confiscate, at least temporarily, these cell phones. But you are okay with districts um, actually having a no-cell phone policy.
1: I'm okay with it if it benefits their community, if that's what's best for their community. But it's not just ridiculous that they're spending this amount of money and trying to control cell phones that they do not pay for. They also need to consider whether it's a FERPA violation. Okay. A child's privacy, a right to have contact or communication with their parent, They're they're kind of crossing a line right there in my opinion. I mean,
0: because you could say like, all right, so these things are locked up in a pouch. We're not touching them, but at the same time, you they do have the device to unlock them.
1: That's correct. The teachers have access to unlock a cell phone Mm -hmm. that they are not providing. For someone else's child. Or
0: maybe a, a school resource officer might say, hey, let me see little Johnny's phone. I have some suspicions. What a happens?
1: Violation then? right there. Right. Because school resource officers are there to enforce the law for adults that visit the campus. School administrators are the ones who should have any type of probable cause or reason to check a cell phone. But if it's in the pouches, why? Right. So yeah. I just think a lot of questions are, or a lot of flags come up here. And I, I I personally would have a lot of questions about it.
0: All right, here's one uh, I've got for you, a new survey about teachers working a second job. And they surveyed about 660 teachers. And um, what do you think the percentage was of teachers and working that side job?
1: My wild guess is going to be anywhere from 85 to 90%. Really? That 10% not working, is probably someone in a two salary household.
0: Okay, so so this survey reports just over 49%, basically 50%. So, so you're thinking if it's a, a single mom um, doesn't have any help from a spouse uh, in the household, they're probably working a second job. How did we get here?
1: I think there's a number of things to think about. Um, I think the level of respect and appreciation for the teaching profession um, has turned a little dark. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen some things over the years in the news that has negatively impacted our profession. But at the same time, there's not a a a career out there that doesn't require a teacher.
0: Right.
1: Um, and then of course there's the thing where they tell us that, uh, well, you only work nine months out of the year.
0: Everyone Uh, knows that's garbage. uh, Well,
1: I don't know. I don't think they do realize that teachers work early morning, late nights, weekends, and they really work a lot of days in summer, mandatory staff development on their non-contractual days. Right. And, you know, I think the other thing is just that, uh, And it's a topic I try to stay away from, but politics is playing a huge role in the funding of education.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we try to stay away from politics um, here on this show. Um, but I mean, you have to point out that it just seems like politicians often do that thing where they, they fund education right before the election, but then they count on us forgetting that they didn't fund a, a education those years right after the election. So usually it's uh, year one, two, and three right after the election. They don't really put a whole lot of money there. Um, but then just before they need to campaign again, they'll throw some money into education so they can say, oh, well, yeah, we, we just did that. And I just don't understand how people have such a short-term memory.
1: I can assure you every single time teacher remembers.
0: But do you think those teachers are voting and really representing their pocketbook when they go to vote?
1: I think in the past, um, we I, I can only speak for my era, I think we were raised to follow the footsteps of our parents and how they voted and what their political views were. But in the times that we're living in now, I think young people and teachers that are younger in the profession are much more knowledgeable and much more involved um, in policy regarding education. So I think the times are changing on that.
0: Well, Christina, it's a g- great conversation. Are you ready for the Bright Idea? I am ready. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us the lowdown on inquiry-based learning. Trevor McKenzie is the author of Dive into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset, and he's also just back from a month-long Australian tour where he was spreading the word about inquiry-based learning. Trevor, welcome to Class Dismissed.
2: Nick, thanks so much. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Great to connect and uh, looking forward to this.
0: We're excited to connect too. But first, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to do something that may or may not be hard. I guess it depends on how much you, you're prepared on this stuff. But imagine you and I are on an elevator together and we're getting off at of different floors and I say, Trevor, what's inquiry-based learning? How do you quickly get that point across.
2: Yeah, I love it. Uh, Well, that's a challenge because, you know, I spent days, sometimes weeks working with teachers around the world and deepening understanding of inquiry. But uh, in a nutshell, I would say getting our students to have more of an active role in the classroom, uh, exploring their questions and their curiosities as entry points into our curriculum and definitely playing with the role of the teacher in the classroom. And sometimes that teacher is at the front of the room and uh, leading the way, so to speak. And sometimes the teacher is that guide on the ride, you know, someone who's facilitating and supporting learners. And, uh, you know, the role of questions, I think, is pivotal in the inquiry classroom. And then I have to stop because I've exited the elevator and you're moving up and I'm gone. So... Uh, but again, you know, Nick, it's something that's an ongoing piece of my work—is helping teachers around the world uh, with implementation of inquiry, if you will.
0: Well, and now, and now we can actually dive into it. And I'm just going to refer to it as IBL probably for the rest of the uh, the the show. But how how is this different from, say, personalized learning? We've done episodes on that. They sound kind of similar, but not the same, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think
2: inquiry as an umbrella—you know, there are many frameworks and protocols, and and. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say catchphrases, but there's a lot of trendy jargon happening around, you know, the global educational discourse right now. Project, project-based learning, problem-based learning, personalized learning. I think inquiry is the overarching umbrella. And underneath that umbrella, what we're trying to do is really give our experience in our classrooms over to the students, so they can take ownership over different components of their learning. So whether it's you know designing a genuine, authentic task to exploring a curiosity or a question that's theirs. Uh, you know, I think all those frameworks underneath the umbrella of inquiry really shift the ownership over to the students. And that gradual release of, release of responsibility from the teacher to the student, I think is a really key aspect that inquiry uh, pushes forward.
0: Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, you you want to give ownership to the students. I mean, does that mean you're, you're asking them, all right, well, what do we learn about today? Like, how does that look?
2: Yeah, it looks like different things uh, throughout the year. You know, I I find time and time again, students at the beginning of the year, they they, they tend to be more cautious and more anxious around taking ownership over over their learning. And, you know, we we can't fault them for that. I think our educational systems have been really, you know, pushing a, a complacent model for years and years and years. And then they walk into an inquiry space. And they're asked to, hey, well, what are you passionate about or what are you curious about? So earlier on in the year, it really is modeling what inquiry can look like through a teacher-directed inquiry. You know, I always start my unit design with a big, overarching, ungoogleable question, if you will. And I make that Google or ungooglable question front and center in my classroom, right? So we can all see it. And I try to have it be really enticing. You know, I want to pull my my students into our curriculum through that overarching question. And then I'm really big on provocations, Nick. Provocations are those really exciting entry points into our curriculum. I show a lot of video that is tied to our curriculum, uh, but really trying to spark interest and curiosity within my students and then kind of figure out what questions they have around the concepts of which we're going to study. So really being a responsive educator in terms of my unit planning, rather than planning out unit after unit after unit before I get to know my students and the questions they have about our curriculum, does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And, and so I know you like to to break it down to almost like four categories when you're when you're teaching, other teachers how to pull this off in their class. And and I guess you decided to start doing this because you would probably give speeches and, and everyone would want to just like jump into the deep end of the pool to, to use your scenario. And you're, you're kind of like, no, we need to do this more gradually. We need to do this as if we are a swim coach, right?
2: Yeah, you know, a a key piece of my work is is a framework that students and teachers can experience inquiry through. And really, if you can imagine that swimming pool, you know, there's a shallower end where the teacher is definitely taking on more of a role in terms of planning an inquiry unit. You know, the questions that we ask, the provocations that are brought in, the resources that students are going to grapple with and unpack, that's all decided uh, through the lens of the teacher. And that's my role is really modeling what a strong inquiry can look like. And then four units of study, that's what we call a structured inquiry. You know, another unit of study would be a controlled inquiry. Then we transition into guided inquiry. And finally, free inquiry. And free inquiry is that deep end of the inquiry pool where students are choosing the topic. They're crafting their own question that they're going to explore and try to answer. You know, I'm helping them find resources that they're going to use to answer that big question that they've asked. And then they have agency over how they want to demonstrate their learning. You know, what's the best vehicle to share and communicate everything that they've learned through the process of that free inquiry. So, you know, those two different types of inquiry from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool. If listeners can imagine this gradual shift in responsibility over learning from the teacher, to the students, so our students are less anxious, and then they're gaining the skills and understandings required to be successful in taking on more agency over learning. Those four types of inquiry are four units of study in my classroom across the whole year from September until June. Uh, And you know, at times I, I settle into a certain type longer because my students require more time, not just to explore a question, but more specifically to really gain and sharpen those tools and those skills that inquirers need. Uh, and then, you know, of course, we, we culminate our year in that free inquiry, the deep end of the pool. In my classroom, that tends to look like a gala or some kind of a public display of understanding, if you will, where we try to take our learning beyond the four walls of our classroom and invite people from the community in or people from other classrooms in. Because inevitably, the questions and the topics these students are exploring in free inquiry They're super interesting. Right. And we want to share that learning because learning shouldn't be confined just to a single course or, you know, something that can be dumped into a recycling bin at the end of the year. It should be meaningful for all those involved. So really trying to take it to, you know, towards the end of the year to a gala space. I think students really enjoy sharing their free inquiry projects to a public audience.
0: You offer up this really cool graphic that basically draws out what you were, were just saying, and and I'll either link to it or if you'll let me share it um, when we post this podcast in the notes. But you you have like the structured um, inquiry area, and it's it's kids in a pool with a coach, and they're like on the wall, and and they're they're just getting started, they're just getting used to the pool. And as you work along, next you hand them the the little paddle boards that they may swim with, or the little wake boards, and then they're starting to do freestyle on their own. And then it's just kind of like they're in the deep end, and they're some are jumping off the dive board and so forth. So I don't know if that it's, it's difficult sometimes to draw a picture in in a podcast, but hopefully that kind of helps our listeners a little bit. Um, you
2: and- did a great job there, Nick. Well done. <laughs> and, I, and I strongly recommend people, you know, download and print off the graphic. You know, it's something I, le- I use in my classroom all the time. Uh, it's a teaching resource essentially for my students so they can understand where their role is going to shift throughout the year, uh, and how my role is also going to shift to better support them taking ownership over their learning. So yeah, by all means, Nick, please link it to the podcast. And, and listeners, please print it off and use it with your students. And,
0: and so that's good to know that you actually share it with the students. So if somebody's still not keeping up with us, like, can you give me a real-life example of like the first step, structured inquiry, and you, what are you doing Like in terms of, um, I guess you're an English teacher at, at heart, right?
2: Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a trained English teacher, but, you know, my work really transcends uh, a specific subject area. You know, I think teachers from kindergarten all the way up to higher ed can adopt Inquiry as their own. You know, on day one, uh, you know, it's all about relationships, Nick. As we know in education, we have to build strong relationships with our students. And that's just oh so true in an Inquiry classroom. You know, getting to know our students both in terms of their strengths and their challenges, but also their interests and their curiosities so I could leverage those, towards the deeper end of the pool. You know, I I don't do a single assignment for the first couple of weeks. Uh, My students are writing and they're talking, but nothing is taken in for marks because I really want to create a strong relationship with all my kids. So, you know, on day one, I'm doing all those goofy name games. I'm meeting my kids at the front door and we're doing kind of little checks and little conversations so I can get to know them better. Uh, And as soon as I feel like that relationship is strong and I've gotten to know my students pretty darn well, uh, I roll out that structured inquiry And that is, you know, I begin with that overarching, ungoogleable question. You know, one that we're chewing on right away this year will be, who are you and what shapes your identity? Uh, And that's a big question for any young person to explore. Uh, Beautiful question in the English classroom, because as we read different pieces, whether it's stories or poems or watch documentaries or read novels, you know, identity is a key characteristic across literature. And having my students not just understand identity through literature, but create a deeper understanding of themselves and what their values and their beliefs are and their goals. That's kind of the, the balance I'm, I'm trying to achieve in this structured inquiry. Uh, you know, both give them an active role in exploring themselves through the lens of the literature that we're reading. Uh, I'll roll out a really awesome provocation that I've designed that looks at identity across different scopes in society. You know, we'll look at branding and pop culture and media and its impact on identity We'll look at gender and identity, which is really, really an important topic for young students to grapple with and kind of sharpen a conversation around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll look at politics, politics and identity and the shape of values that are in our political realm. And it all comes back to like, eventually them understanding themselves better as students and as learners and as citizens in our world, right? So uh, starting learning with a question, I think is the greatest shift teachers and listeners can make in, in, in with regards to unit design. You know, what is that overarching question that is tied to a concept that's in our curriculum or a topic in our curriculum and drafting that overarching question and making it really visible in your classroom. So everything you're doing and talking about and reading is tied to that overarching question. And essentially, that's our goal is to answer that question isn't it by the end of our unit students should be able to talk to and write to uh the answer to that question if you will nick
0: and do you think the students are keeping up um as you go along, like, do they do they see this almost as a teacher would see this? A key hallmark
2: of an inquiry classroom is just being really transparent and intentional with all aspects of learning in the classroom. There's no, you know, hidden agenda here. There's no, you know, the students don't know where we're going. The frameworks and the structures that we, we adopt in an inquiry classroom not just allow students to have a clear understanding of where we're going and that active role that we're seeking out. But I mean, we're constantly talking, right? The inquiry classroom, I I think is pretty lively, pretty boisterous, And we're always talking. And in that talking, I'm getting a really clear understanding of both where my students are currently and then where we need to go next. Where do I need to take the next in terms of my direct instruction and any resources that I could bring in to deepen their understanding of that question? So I would say students have a really clear understanding of where we're headed. And I think they feel really confident in the sense that they see that swimming pool graphic and they know that we're starting in the shallow end and they know that slowly throughout the year they're going to take on more agency and more of an active role, and that we won't go further in that swimming pool until they're ready. And that gives them a lot of confidence, that trust and that faith that they have seeing that swimming pool graphic.
0: As you travel, do you find that teachers are aware and already practicing IBL? Or is this something that you're like walking in and blowing their mind and and then they're attacking it? (laughs) Well, I see
2: both, Nick. Uh, But to be honest, I'm typically invited into spaces to support teachers, and they've already committed themselves to this journey. And and what they need help with isn't you know, understanding why they want to do IBL, but it's the how, it's the implementation piece. And so very rarely do I walk into a space where I feel like I have to do any convincing, if you will. Mm. Typically, it's, it's in a space where teachers have committed themselves, and it's getting down into the nitty-gritty of how to roll out an inquiry unit. It's kind of what we're talking about here, Nick, and what those steps look like, and what does a year look like in inquiry, and what challenges or barriers to inquiry have I witnessed in my own classroom and in my own visits to schools, so I could try my best to support those teachers who I'm supporting uh, at the schools that I visit. So, you know, inquiry, I think is uh, it's, it's on the tip of the global conversation right now uh, in education. And I think it's because schools and organizations are looking to move away from an over-standardized curriculum and assessment model and to that personalized model that you referred to at the outset of our podcast here. And what does that more personalized space look like? Uh, and what are the frameworks where we can adopt more agency for our students in the classroom. So I don't want to say it's trendy. You know, Inquiry's been around for a very long time. It's nothing new. But I think it's really relevant right now because of that, that shift in education that we're seeing around the world. Uh,
0: so talking about IBL and personalized learning in general, to, to a person who's very structured and organized, it can probably be really intimidating. Like, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have this student doing this and this student doing that. Like, how do you convince the, the structured and organized person that this might be a good way to go?
2: yeah you know I try to break down some inquiry myths, if you will, Nick. you know, I think one inquiry myth is that explicit instruction is bad, and that you know the teacher at the front of the room standing at a lecture stand that doesn 't happen in an inquiry space and that 's just not the case we 've seen the research tell us that when a teacher does some explicit instruction, especially in a response to a student's curiosity or to an interest or to a need that the students have, inquiry is much more successful so uh, you know I, I, I think some teachers have a tough time letting go of that that sense of control in an inquiry classroom. but teachers need to understand that inquiry does have explicit instruction, and uh, it does have many of the components that we've always done in a traditional setting they transfer over to an inquiry classroom. And I think breaking down some of those myths and really deepening an understanding of what inquiry is, how it feels, uh, how you plan an inquiry allows, you know, a teacher who likes control to see themselves in inquiry because an inquiry isn't, a loss of control. It isn't, you know, messy and uncertain. A teacher just shifts their role from again that teacher directed, always at the focal point of the classroom, to slowly removing some of those restraints over learning to empower our students once they have the skills and understandings necessary to take on more agency over their learning. Does that make sense to you,
0: Nick? Yes, absolutely. And and you have two books: Dive into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset. You know, how do you recommend people dive in with your book? Should they start with the first one and then move on to the second?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first one I wrote uh, with all educators in mind, and then in my work visiting schools around the world, I was getting these really specific questions from primary teachers, you know, that K to five lens. And so Inquiry Mindset really has been written for uh, early years educators from K to grade five, uh, whereas Dive in Inquiry, it transcends kind of K to higher ed. But what I've begun to notice is it's more widely well-received middle school, high school. So we kind of have two books depending on your grade level. If you teach middle school, high school, I would say dive into inquiries for you. And if you teach the younger years, inquiry mindsets for you. And what we're doing there is the frameworks and the structures and the process. It's the same in either book, but the examples that we give and how we roll this out with the younger years as compared to our older students, that's more specific in terms of the resource that we've created for you.
0: All right, Trevor McKenzie, if someone wants to keep up with you, do you like to interact? Are you on like social media? Do you like Twitter? Do you have a place you like to hang out?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, find me. Uh, my online space is Uh And, you know, I mentioned that because there are a bunch of free resources, whether it's webinars or, you know, those tangible resources that you can bring in your classroom to support inquiry. Uh, I'm really active on, on Twitter. It's at trev underscore mackenzie. And then I am on Instagram at TNT mackenzie. So those are kind of my three spaces where I love to interact with teachers.
0: Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to enlighten myself and our listeners about IBL. Are you ready for our pop quiz?
2: I suppose I am. Let's do this. (laughs) All right.
0: First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be?
2: Oh, my goodness. It's got to be art. I think all students need to be creative. And uh, yeah, art teachers are just amazing. So I'd say uh, an art class would be the one class I'd want all students to participate in.
0: What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching?
2: Empathy. Absolutely. Empathy needs to be a learning objective and uh, that needs to be front and center in some of our unit design. Empathy is it.
0: What does every child deserve?
2: Every child deserves to be seen. I think teachers, uh, you know, I beg you to see your students, know their names and uh, build that relationship. And from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave our days with us, they need to be seen.
0: What's the biggest challenge for today's Educators.
2: Oh, I think it's to let go of the things that we've done in the past to adopt the things that are new or uncertain for us and to be comfortable in that mess of uncertainty and uh, recognize that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but that we need to uh, make that shift and, and be comfortable in that uncertainty.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator? Ooh, that's a tough
2: one. Oh, I'd like to say a bottle of wine, but I guess I should go with a book since I am an author. I think, uh, you know, those tangible books that allow us to implement a big idea, but in a really uh, actionable way. I think, uh, you know, a resource is, is really critical and important.
0: Which teacher changed your life?
2: Oh, my goodness. My high school basketball coach, Mickey Welder. Uh, from long rides at the front of the bus talking about life to, uh, just teaching me strong work ethic, you know, what good communication and collaboration and team skills looks like. I think my time as a basketball coach under Mickey Welder taught me a lot about the teacher I want to be and and the father I am.
0: Well, and that's interesting. You had nothing to do with curriculum. It was like you said, he got to know you, right?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, you know, all teachers should coach at some point in their careers because I think it really, again, it opens up our eyes to students in a different light. But uh, it it allows us to take on mentorship, mentorship, if you will, in in a different way as well. So very thankful for those teachers who give up themselves outside of the classroom as well as inside of the classroom, Nick.
0: And last question. It's an easy one. Pen or pencil? Oh, pencil. All right. Trevor McKenzie, again, (laughs) we appreciate you taking the time to... To bring us up to speed on IBL and uh, best of luck to you with uh, all your books and all your work. Nick, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at class or tweet us at dismiss.